me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. It is a great day to be talking about energy, saving money on your bill, living more sustainably, and using all the available technology that you can get. I'm Tim Eccles, the host of Energy Matters. Welcome to our show today. We do have an exciting show. We've got in studio with me my co-host today, Casey Boyce. Casey, welcome back. Good morning, Tim. And Casey, tell us a little bit about the company you work for. So I'm with a company called Escalant. We help uh, companies, including energy utilities, understand uh, and work with their customers better. And I live in the great city of Decatur. Yeah, great having you back. And Dr. David Gaddy from the University of Georgia, from the engineering department, uh, Dr. Gaddy, we, we've talked about you a number of times on the show, and I think we've had, had you over one other time, but you ha- recently testified before Congress uh, back in December of 2019, and we really want to dissect uh, that whole opportunity and everything that was said there, so it's great to have you in studio. Thank you. I appreciate y'all having me here, Tim. Dr. Gaddy, tell us a little bit about the opportunity that you had to go to Congress. Who got you up there, and was it scary? Give us a little bit of the human part of the experience. One of the staffers reached out to me, Tim. This was probably sometime back in about uh, maybe April or May. They had uh, seen some of my commentaries and op-eds and some of the things that I've been writing over the past few years on not just nuclear in particular, but energy policy in general. And they reached out to just start a conversation for the most part. The House Energy and Commerce Committee was then, of course, it was, you know, the majority parties, the Democrats. So they were they were really leaning in on climate change policy, looking at climate change policy. And so the staff reached out to me because I had, in a lot of my articles, had written about some of the dual dualities of nuclear's benefits being not only reliability and security, but also its climate benefits. So they reached out and wanted to just have a conversation, which we had actually over the course of several months. They had a series in the um, in the subcommittee, the, the Environment and Climate Change Subcommittee. I think this was one that Speaker Pelosi had prompted uh, back when the Democrats took over the House. They had this subcommittee formed, and they had a series of, of hearings dating back probably to about June, July, August, and this was the culminating um, hearing in December. And so uh, the, they were looking at placing me in one of those hearings, but I think finally when this one came up, they were looking at a, um, you know, how to get to a 100% carbon-free economy. And a lot of the um, a lot of the policies coming from the from the Democrats side were about carbon taxes, and so they wanted me to give a, a a little bit of a different voice. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at my testimony. It's only forty pages. I expect you to have read it by now, and had it on you know by heart. You've got it right. I, I listened to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wasn't the forty page recitation. Uh, no, I haven't read the forty pages. <laughs> but we, the but the, the there are graphs, of, right? <clears throat> there are lots of graphs. Yeah, a summary. <laughs> <laughs> but the point in what I was projecting in my testimony was, with regard to you know what the what the real impact of a zero carbon U.S. economy could actually have on global climate change. And that was what they wanted me to bring to the committee hearing was to just try and balance uh, some of the, just for lack of a better word, some of the myopia on a carbon tax because that was kind of taking over a little bit of the, the taking a lot of the air out of the room. And the three other uh, folks on the on the hearing that day, very fine people, smart as a whip, you know, smarter than me, Tim, Tim Profeta out of Duke and Noah Kaufman from Columbia University, and Dan Esty from Yale, I kind of felt real out of place. These were three high-profile p- 
private universities. Hey, don't be intimidated by those Ivy League Oh, no, guys. no. I wasn't intimidated. I just said I felt a little bit out of place, mate, because these yeah. were three private universities. Here I was from the land-grant university. Of, but the point there being I was the first, you know, that we were the first land-grant university in the country. So I was proud of that. That's right. So, to you know, to the point about was it nervous? Was it? it, it I, th- I think I've been. Th- I've had so many of these talks. I have presented this to so many people over the past several years to some pretty large groups. I wasn't very nervous about uh, about my case, about my point, about my policy principles that I wanted to convey. Let me jump in and 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 and, <clears throat> and Casey. I was at UCLA in December for a conference, mm-hmm. a clean energy conference. And one of the things I discovered out there in Los Angeles at this conference uh, was that clean means different things to oh, different people. Sure does. And, and, and a lot of these cities, run by mostly Democrats, and full disclosure to my audience, I'm a Republican. I regulate energy here in Georgia. Uh, I have seven kids. I'm, I'm very much a Republican, uh, though I drive an electric car and I you know, obviously promote renewable energy on this show. But Casey... There is some argument over what clean means, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've seen um, communities that are talking about renewable and saying that it's got to be a renewable source to be clean. Some people say, well, hydro isn't even renewable because it's got a negative environmental impact. So, you know, there's really a lot of squishiness to that term clean. And, And I like the focus, Dr. Gaddy, on this idea of, you know, low to no carbon economy. That that is a quantifiable thing as opposed to quote unquote clean. Right. And Casey, right. one of the other things and I, throughout this show today with Doctor Gaddy, uh, and and he and and he is a doctor, not a medical doctor. <laughs> he is a doctor. Uh, uh, he is a smart guy. Uh, uh, but one of the one of the one of the things that I'm going to complain about, Casey, uh, is is what I view as a little bit of hypocrisy uh, on the part of some of these officials around who will they'll use the word clean they don't necessarily say what it means exactly they give themselves all kind of escape clauses Mm -hmm. right so they'll set a goal to have a hundred percent clean quote unquote by 2040 by 2050 by 2060 many instances there's no kind of a law or an ordinance requiring that it's just it's just a resolution, all right. And it really could be changed by the next group of politicians that yeah. came in. It's a little bit, it's a little bit hypocritical. Well, and I'll tell you what. I, I spent a number of years working with cities and counties on climate change, and this was back in the late aughts, I guess. Um, uh, I don't know if that's the official term. Two thousand seven, two thousand. It's understood. It's understood. Okay, good. Um, and. Every time a mayor would come out and say, hey, we are committed to reducing our emissions, you know, they get lots of press, rah, rah. Nothing's happened since. It's been a decade. Cities really have not made that much progress, even those that said we're going to achieve deep reductions. I'm done giving kudos for press releases. What matters now is action, right? You know what, Casey? Rhetoric. If you live out there on Twitter like I do, or you attend a lot of events like I do, it seems like a lot of folks in the environmental left, they're very happy to get that rhetoric. They, they love for someone to say, oh, I believe in this, or I want that. And I tell them, look, it doesn't matter what anybody says. What are they doing, right? What kind of policies are they creating? What kind of what kind of transitions are they actually making? Are they driving a, an electric mm-hmm. car? Have they put solar on their home? Are they living this? Or are they just preaching this right. to other people? Well, let's do this. I want us to get into the first four minutes of this audio, and we're going to jump back in at the end of this segment. Well, we're going to spend the whole show today doing a postmortem on Dr. Gaddy's visit to Washington, D.C., uh, some of the things he said, why he said it. Let's jump in. And the, the, the chairman of the committee uh, is going to kick the meeting off. And here we go. So today we're going to hear about options for robust, comprehensive, and economy-wide policy solutions to hit that target. We'll hear about the essential role the federal government can play. Um, and again, if I can go back to uh, the weekend uh, conference, I think that everyone knows that the state and the local governments continue to play a major role and can do a lot of the things that we need to do to reach uh, the target 
uh, of 2050, but it's not enough. The federal government has to get involved. So finally, we're going to hear about how economy-wide climate action will not only reduce emissions, but will also stimulate the economy. By investing in the low and zero carbon technologies of the future, the U.S. can become a world leader in clean energy innovation. And I look forward to hearing from our witnesses about that. And thank you again, uh, Chairman Tonko. And I yield back. So back in the studio, he yielded back. So I'm going to take over here the mic. I've got David Gaddy, Dr. David Gaddy from UGA uh, Engineering School with me and Casey Boyce, my co-host guys that that just a minute from the chairman there uh, is is quite juicy he talked about hitting a, a a 2050 target he talked about the role of federal government state governments local governments in this he talked um about how he felt the federal government must get involved and this is something that frankly i've i've pushed back on and, of course, this is assuming that we need the target in the first place. Casey, I mean, you travel the country. He's talking about these targets. You're seeing, uh, you know, 2050 is his target, but a lot of cities I talk with, they have other targets, Yeah, 2030, right? others, and, and it depends what your baseline year is, and it depends on what your percent reduction is. And so, I mean, honestly, I'm not a, I'm not a federal government guy, but that's one thing that it has going for it is standardization. Yeah, you know, I de- I'm just concerned, uh, one, that CO2 become this most important thing in our lives, right? Dr. Gaddy, they didn't mention about the other pollutants involved, no, right? No, no. In fact, you know, to the to the point of what y'all were speaking to earlier about clean, I'm, generally everywhere I go when, when you say clean energy, they are speaking specifically of CO2. They're not, to your point, Tim, they're not talking about – SO2 and NOx and particulate matter and mercury and things like that. If you go to other countries, <clears throat> clean energy means human health. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep this conversation going. <laughs> we got so much to cover. Stick around. We're going to continue to hear from Dr. Gaddy, his trip to Congress. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. BMVW is the place in Metro Atlanta to get your used hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or fully electric car. They're located on the south side near the airport, but it is well worth the drive. Go online to look at their inventory at ev-hybrid.com and set up a time to see the vehicle or even drive it for up to three days. I don't know of anywhere else in Metro Atlanta that you can do that. That's ev-hybrid.com, the best deal in town. ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We're back with Energy Matters and in the studio with me, my co-host, Casey Boyce. Casey, Howdy, Tim. Yeah, good to, good to talk to you. You're from Decatur. You drive an electric car. And we're talking about something near and dear to my heart today, nuclear energy. Uh, we've got Dr. David Gaddy uh, in the studio. Dr. Gaddy appeared before uh, a congressional committee back in December 2019, and we're kind of doing a po- post-mortem on the whole experience. Casey, you've had a chance to listen to his testimony, and we're going to play his testimony momentarily. It was a great opportunity for Dr. Gaddy. 
Casey, I want to play Dr. Gaddy's testimony and then unpack it. And we're going to link to the full testimony on our Twitter feed, It Matters Radio. So let's go ahead and roll Dr. Gaddy's appearance uh, before the U.S. Congress. I want to thank the chairman, the ranking member, members of the subcommittee for the opportunity to come before you today. My testimony aligns with the following points. America is facing two national security threats, one around climate change and the other around the U.S. nuclear power enterprise. Climate change is global in cause and impacts, and as carbon emissions increase globally, those impacts won't stop at U.S. borders simply because we have an aggressive domestic climate policy. The U.S. economy and its industrial capacity should be leveraged to innovate and deploy low and zero carbon technologies in developing economies where carbon emissions are of greatest concern. Nuclear power should be central to U.S. policy with a strategy to develop advanced reactor technologies for domestic and international deployment. And America must engage in climate issues globally with national security as the overarching objective. Globally, energy consumption and carbon emissions are increasing, not decreasing. From 2000 to 2018, 90% of the increase in carbon emissions originated in Asia-Pacific countries, predominantly China and India, while emissions in the U.S. declined. Under the most aggressive carbon policy, eliminating all U.S. emissions would reset global emissions to 2006 levels, meaning if climate change was a threat in 2006 with U.S. emissions, climate change is a threat in 2018 without U.S. emissions. While exponential growth in non-hydro renewables is elevating hopes that renewables are closing the gap on fossil fuels, that gap isn't closing, it's expanding. For the past 10 years, over 81% of global wind and over 82% of global solar were concentrated in countries with substantial fossil fuels, nuclear, and or hydro built into their economies, meaning traditional energy resources have provided the foundation for renewables to expand. This recommends a global triage approach with resources and efforts directed toward regions where the issue is acute or emerging. In developing regions, Countries are at various stages of economic growth, therefore it's necessary to determine which energy technologies can be deployed effectively to sustain low carbon economic development. One such technology is nuclear power. Early U.S. nuclear policymakers recognized the strategic importance of America's nuclear enterprise. To them, nuclear wasn't just another energy commodity, the fate of which should be dictated by political calculus, popular opinion, or market forces alone. Rather, it was central to America's foreign policy, so their approach was principled and strategic, not populist and transactional. A key objective was to create the world's most advanced nuclear technology base from which mutually beneficial global partnerships could be established within the emerging liberal international order. The 21st century is undergoing geopolitical shifts, and China and Russia are leveraging state-owned nuclear enterprises as extensions of the state to establish long-term energy and technology dependencies. If U.S. policy orients our technology trajectory away from nuclear, it will signal to the world that America has set aside its commitment to be a reliable partner in nuclear development, thus opening the door for China and Russia. Efforts to decarbonize the U.S. economy will require investment. If the return on that investment is only a near-term reduction in U.S. carbon emissions, the U.S. will remain vulnerable to climate change over the long term as global emissions increase. The U.S. cannot insulate itself from the impacts of global climate change through domestic policies targeting only the U.S. economy. Therefore, U.S. climate policy must be global and strategic, keeping in mind that if the U.S. transitions away from current energy interdependencies, those interdependencies can develop into vulnerabilities open to exploitation by energy-rich and technology-advantaged countries that don't share America's values. To that end, U.S. policy should focus on developing energy and technology relationships within developing regions, cultivated as international investment opportunities for U.S. industry, and coupled to diplomatic efforts of U.S. engagement and goodwill. Lastly, the national security implications of U.S. nuclear power simply cannot be overstated. While nuclear has proven its value to America, its contributions remain on the horizon as economic development, climate change, and national security converge into a perfect storm of 21st century global challenges that nuclear is capable of addressing. The U.S. cannot be an energy and climate island 
America must engage globally, and it must do so with national security as its overarching objective. Thank you, and I look forward to your question. Excuse me. Dr. Gaddy, that was pretty impressive as you shared that. Was it intimidating looking all those, uh, I guess, members in the eye as well as uh, TV cameras and, and clicking clicking cameras and radio mics? You know, Tim, it wasn't so much intimidating. It was just really awesome to be in a place like that, just the greatest democratic institution in the world. It was, it was, a, good, it was a good thing. Questions? We want to unpack this a little bit for our listeners. So um, one of the things that you talked about, Dr. Gaddy, was um, developing advanced nuclear technology. What exactly is that? So currently, right now, we're looking at in the U.S., probably globally for the most part, we've been using light water reactors since the, you know, the 50s and 60s. Um, uh, the, the things that we're looking at doing long term here, KC, are... Uh, things like small modular reactors. I think I've heard y'all talk about that here on Energy Matters. That's that that's that's one one thing. There are also some other more non-proliferation type reactors, such as the the molten salt reactors. Several of those designs are still out there. We actually had some very robust nuclear research going on back in the 70s and 80s. Their experiment, experimental breeder reactor was one that was developed at Argonne. It was a fast reactor. It was integrated, and it was one that could actually take uh, nuclear waste and use it as a fuel. So hmm. it essentially cut cut the um, you know the, the 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 storage disposable disposal time for nuclear waste from thousands of years down to a couple of hundred years. So we've still got a lot of uh, of work that we can do out there that'll that'll lend itself to the waste issues, the waste stream issues, and just it'll, it'll extend the life of a lot of these reactors for many many years so i've been hearing about things like small modular reactors for for decades and as far as i know they're not commercialized how far away are we from actually seeing some of this stuff inside a- inside of 10 years so new scale will have theirs up probably inside of about 10 years uh there'll be some over south korea's got some that are in uh, that they're in uh, in research in the research phase and development phase, and there'll be others. Russian, China, Japan, and those they're working on small modulars as well. But I think our first one here in the U.S. is going to be probably that new scale reactor. And again, those are light water reactors. There are also small modulars that are molten salt type reactors, and some of those you'll see coming out of uh, Canadian firms like Terrestrial Energy. Dr. Gaddy, I'm a huge fan of nuclear energy. A huge promoter. Obviously, I've I've voted to move Plant Vogel forward, and we're building two Westinghouse AP1000 reactors there. But I, I tell you, Doctor Gaddy, I, I I just don't know that a single state like Georgia, and we're the only state in America building a nuclear reactor. I don't know that you can put the burden of proof of concept onto a state like Georgia and our ratepayers and have us really be able to do it. I just feel like we need some other financial model. I just don't I just after doing this one time with Vogel, I don't know that I would ever in, enter into it again under the same type of financial arrangement. Right, particularly and and particularly now Tim that that natural gas is as low as it is, of course. Um, but at the time and, and you go back on this as well as anybody, but at the time, that was the right decision. It was the right decision in 2009 for the state of Georgia to move forward. I agree with you. We can't place the burden of things like this on the back of a single state's ratepayers. Agreed and understood. <clears throat> but, as a, but as a forward-looking strategy, there are things the U.S. is simply going to have to step up here and make decisions on. My contention in this testimony is that nuclear power is not simply just another energy commodity. It is a national security issue that the U.S. decided back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s would be at the center of our foreign policy and national security issues. So, how, how come we can't go out to the Savannah <laughs> River site, which is a national lab, and have the federal government do a grant to build one of these uh, one of these advanced reactors, perfect the design there. They can sell the electricity to neighboring communities and perfect that with those federal dollars, and then let it be commercialized after that's done. I mean, will that model work? 
Well, it's fair enough. We had some of that research going on. I've just mentioned that to KC. We had that research going on. It was very close. It was shut down in, I think, 93 or 94. I think President Clinton did it in his State of the Union. But again, I'm going to push a little bit here and tell you that we are going to have to do something more long-term and systemic. And one of my suggestions, and this is something that I submitted in a follow-up to the Energy and Commerce Committee, is we need to do a thorough industrial base review of where we are in our U.S. nuclear enterprise. Where is America in its nuclear enterprise? What's, yep, what yep. sort of bottlenecks? And Let's hold that thought. I want us to come back in the next segment and continue to talk about what it takes to make this feasible in the United States of America. Stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. We'll be right back. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. They're dedicated to energy solutions for both your home and business. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure their clients receive the highest quality of solar energy systems in the industry. Contact CSUSA today at 770-485-7438 or go to creativesolarusa.com. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. ev hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMW Auto Sales. Welcome back. I'm Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters, and we're really going at it in, in the studio today. Uh, I've got Casey Boyce, my co-host, who can hardly get a, a word in edgewise. Casey, Howdy, because, yeah, because we never really talk about nuclear energy very much, but it is a passion of mine, right? I mean, I'm known. So I've heard. Yeah, I, I'm kind of known for that. Uh, and and here I've got you know one of the foremost authorities on you know on nuclear energy policy in the studio. And the and two of you are going at it like cats and dogs. Yeah, <laughs> we, we are, and we're going to continue to go at it. So, in, in the last segment, we listened to Dr. Gaddy's testimony, which was a little over five minutes, a summary of his testimony before the U.S. Congress from December 2019. Now, remember, Casey, this was a democratically controlled committee. Uh, They had their own climate change agenda, uh, and Dr. Gaddy was invited to come in with a guy from Duke and a guy from Columbia and a guy from Yale uh, to present uh, this information. And and Dr. Gaddy, he is a, a, a great evangelist for nuclear energy and nuclear policy. So, Casey, I do want to go ahead and give you a chance to, to chime in here because I, I'm, I'm very pumped about having him in, in the studio. Casey, after listening to the testimony, hearing our argument, I mean, what, what are some questions that you have for Dr. Gaddy? Well, look, I, you know, I am, I am not as much of an advocate as either of you are. I, I tend to be skeptical on new nuclear, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm biting my tongue a little bit over here. But, but one of the things that you said in your testimony, Dr. Gaddy, that, that um, struck me that I'd love to hear a little bit more about is you mentioned this gap between the development of renewable energy resources, which have come down enormously in cost and the installation across the country has gone up as well as around the world uh, and, and the gap between that generation and fossil generation and that that we need nuclear presumably to, to help fill that gap. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, Casey, it was kind of a central point of what I was trying to get across in the in the hearing. To, to your point, you're right. The cost of uh, particularly the levelized cost of solar and wind have come down exponentially, whatever that phrase would be, over the past several years. And what I often hear when I'm talking energy policy is I hear that renewables are growing ex- exponentially. And, you, and, and it's one of the points I make in my testimony is they actually are growing exponentially. But when they're put in the same context of the growth of fossil fuels – that gap between what we are deploying in non-hydro renewables and what we're deploying in fossil fuels, that gap is what matters most. Renewables can grow as exponential as they want, but if fossil fuel consumption is not going down, 
we gain no ground. So, Dr. Gaddy, I, I'm sorry to jump in here. No, he's Dr. not Gaddy, sorry. <laughs> what you're saying is what you're saying that if we close an existing nuclear power plant, like we did with Vermont Yankee, like we did with the Pilgrim plant in Massachusetts, if we close a plant and replace it with natural gas, as cheap as it is, that from a climate change perspective, we're really going backwards. Is that right? That, that's right. I'm saying that if we, if we displace zero carbon resources with carbon resources, of course we're going backwards. Of, of course. But the environmental left seems <coughs> to wink at that. They seem to say, well, it doesn't really matter because I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why, Casey. Maybe, maybe, I mean, you live in Decatur. You, maybe you can tell me. But why is it that the environmental left is so at war with nuclear energy? I don't know. No, I, I mean, I think the, the big issue, right, that, that a lot of environmentalists have, um, and, and just to be clear, I am not part of or don't consider myself to be part of the environmental left. But I think the issue is that um, the magnitude of risks from something like a Chernobyl or Fukushima level disaster, as well as the question of what do you do with the waste from nuclear power, um, are are so large and so unknown um, to a lot of people that there's there's real concern out there. And, you know, unlike uh, a nuclear accident, you know, a solar spill is a nice day. Right. Um, and, and so I think there is, um, you know, that's coloring a lot of it. Now, I think, you know, where I agree with you guys is we shouldn't be shutting down our existing nuclear reactors. When we've got existing carbon free generation sources, why don't we maximize their lifetimes? I'm just skeptical that something like these small modular reactors coming in 10 years is going to be something that I can put on my house today with a solar panel. So, Tim, I'll add a little bit to, to answer your question. I, there is a firm belief system that renewables can substitute for nuclear power, and maybe not in the near term, but in the long term, they are going all in that battery storage is a, absolutely going to be there to scale. To You're saying there's now. a belief, or do you no, think no, no, it, no. it's I, a reality? It could I, be a reality. I said belief. belief. It is a belief. And I don't accept it. And and I think that that is true. That there, so I I think it's both battery storage and demand flexibility that the belief is that we'll figure that out. But we do not have it figured out today. Um, honestly, I think that's a lot easier to figure out than nuclear engineering. But I'm not an engineer. So actually, it's not. I'd rather uh, go with the reactor than that. But but again, to push this further, all of what we just talked about, demand management, and all that does not matter in developing economies. They don't need less energy. They need more energy. And if it is not reliable, storable energy, such as coal, but in this case nuclear, they're not going to gamble their future on renewable energy. So to, to your point about the gap, <clears throat> let's take a, a, a country that's not developing. Let's take a, a, one of the premier engineering countries in the world, Germany. Germany is set to turn off all of their reactors, nuclear reactors, by 2022. But yet their goal to turn off their coal is 2038. So back to your point about, about one step forward, two steps back, that's my version of your testimony, uh, is that if the Germans turn off the remainder of those reactors and continue to burn the fossil fuel, They've cut off their carbon-free resource, and they've had to replace it with something. Maybe it's the wind if the wind's blowing. Maybe it's the solar if the sun is shining. But it, it very well could be another fossil fuel that they're having to import from one of their e EU neighbors, right? Or they're going to step up their import of nuclear from France. Yeah, and they can import without penalty. They have a very free trading system over there. We've talked about uh, the EU... Uh, trading system on this show before. And, you know, Dr. Gaddy, it's so strange to me. We talked about this hypocrisy early in the show. Uh, and, and I do have German friends. I am a fan of German engineering. Please, please, my audience, don't think I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, just going after the Germans here. Um, but the Germans told me, and these are ministry leaders, utility executives, I said, don't you have a problem export importing french nuclear energy when you you know have a need when the sun's not shining and the wind's not when not blowing and they said 
no, no, not really, because we just don't want to have it here. We don't mind importing it. Uh, it's a, it, it is part of the EU law that we have to take it. We cannot discriminate import energy sources. We can't say to France, we just want your solar. We just want your wind because an electron is an electron when it comes to EU policy. It doesn't mean anymore that it's produced by a windmill or solar panel or a waterfall or anything else is valued at exactly the same. That, yeah. But, but, but again, this... And, and I agree with all your points. That, but what, what Germany is giving us is a perfect example of a couple of things. One is, and I'll be quick, one is this is what you get when policymakers get out in front of science and engineering reality. That is, they came up with a knee-jerk policy right after Fukushima, and they just didn't have the engineers in the room with them. They weren't there. It also tells you that if you're going to build renewables in your economy – the only precedent we have for growing renewables, and I have this in my testimony, is on the shoulders of traditional resources. There is no precedent for industrializing economy on renewables only. We have no precedent for that. So Germany's actually showing us that you can't do it unless you have a traditional energy resource base. That's what the U.S. is showing us. That's what every other country is showing us. We can't tell developing economies how about give that renewables a shot and see how it works out for you? And they're having to keep that coal. I, I, I often joke and say they're playing footsie with the coal uh, because when I <laughs> confront them about the coal, it's like, well, there's a lot of, jo- there's a lot of jobs associated in East Germany and West Germany with our, with our coal mines, and, uh, and it's an important part of the South in providing their energy reliability so we can build these fancy Mercedes and BMWs and Audis and Porsches. Casey, am I being, being too hard on my German friends here? I don't think so. No, I mean, I, again, to the, the point I made earlier, if we've got carbon-free generation, we need to keep it. And I think the Germans shot themselves in the foot with that, as you said, a reactionary policy after Fukushima to say, we're going to shut it down domestically. Uh, it was a bad decision for them. I think it's a bad decision for us where we've seen nuclear power plants shut down. How much does it cost over there, Tim? What's the kilowatt hour electricity? It's Germany? about three times what ours is. Yeah. But so they proudly about 33, 34 cents. But they proudly say, but we use less. Yeah. And of course, they're not, they can't afford it. Well, uh, that's yeah, demand it, side management. They are frugal people. I mean, I, I want to give them that. They're frugal people, they're conscientious. Uh, they, they have engineered themselves out of a pickle thus far. I mean, raising their greenhouse gases, but they've engineered themselves out of a pickle. But they're for sure not having seven kids like I am. They don't have no house with no seven kids. When you have, uh, I, I have three perfect children, and we stopped right there. Yeah, yeah. So, but this is not a show about family planning. Well, look, uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Getty because we're not done yet. Uh, we hope that you are getting as fired up as we are. We hope you'll engage with us on Twitter. Of the shows at Matters Radio. I'm at Tim Eccles. Casey. And I'm at Casey Boyce on Twitter. And Dr. Gaddy, even though you're a professor, you have a Twitter account. I'm, you know that. I, I tweet and <laughs> Facebook. Yeah, just David Gaddy UGA on Facebook and then David Gaddy on Twitter. That's D A V I D G A T T I E. Yeah, it's yeah. Italian. Yeah, and we'll engage with you, and you can hear his Italian accent for one <laughs> more segment on Energy Matters. I'm Tim Eccles. Stick around for more fun. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Tim Eccles here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over Georgia. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. The folks there understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll unpack it all. They've been in business for over 25 years. To find out more, go to SolarSunWorld.com. That's SolarSunWorld.com.
This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AmLaw 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Tim Eccles, your host uh, in the studio with us, uh, Casey Boyce, my co-host. Casey. Howdy, Tim. Dr. Gaddy in for one final segment. You may never come back, Dr. Gaddy. We'll see. Tim, yeah. It's up. It, yeah. Yeah. Been, been treated pretty tough this, 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 this yeah. morning. Yeah. And, and actually, I'm one of your biggest fans. And, and folks would never know it with the arguing that we've had here. But, but one thing we really do agree on, and we do agree on an awful lot, but one thing we agree on is that the late David Blee, who passed away suddenly uh, and it was a recent uh, just uh, allergic reaction to amoxicillin uh, and he was he was just gone uh, and he has been such a mentor to me and you know him you've had a chance to dine with him and visit with him and, and chat with him it's a great loss for the nuclear energy industry isn't it yeah david's a, a, a great great champion of nuclear power. He's, just, he's a great American, Tim. He was a really genuine person. He's going to be missed. Not going to be able to fill his shoes. He's from Paris, Kentucky, and you know, I read his obituary to my children, and as I was reading his obituary, I would stop and say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. You know, I, I didn't know that he was in the thoroughbred horse racing business yep. and that he was vice president of one of the longest-running thoroughbred operations in American history. Okay, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that his, his, his dad was in the CIA, right, and that he was born in uh, Pakistan, I think, and grew up in a couple of foreign countries. I, I didn't. And my wife and daughters who uh, were listening to me read this, they go, I thought this guy was your friend. You didn't know all of this stuff. What did y'all talk about? Yeah. Oh, we talked about nuclear energy because he was an absolute expert, passionate evangelist. I mean, he knew not just about the Westinghouse AP1000s, David, but he knew about reprocessing. He had been to all the facilities. He did a newsletter every month. He did conferences. It was incredible. Yeah, and he understood the national security implications of nuclear power, too. He was he, he understood that and that, that it was a real concern. And I, I have made the argument, uh, and folks can Google my name, Tim Eccles, and Wall Street Journal and Energy Security, and you'll see... Uh, an op-ed I did for the Wall Street Journal. I've, I've written about it extensively. Dr. Gaddy, you've written about it extensively. Uh, that it it is a security issue. I mean, guess what? Our submarines are running on it. Our battleships, not all of them, but some of them are running on, on nuclear energy. Our, our aircraft carriers are running on this. If you go down to the, uh, the sub-base in St. Mary's, Georgia, Kings Bay, you'll see more reactors there than we've got probably in the southeast because they're sitting in submarines. So our military superiority allows us to have a certain amount of security, right? Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and again, that's because nuclear science, engineering, and technology have been embedded in our industrial DNA for 50, 60 years. That's something we can't afford to just simply extract and lose. Once you lose institutional knowledge... <clears throat> you have lost institutional knowledge. So maybe you guys can help me out here a little bit because I'm I'm sort of failing to see the linkage between civilian usage of nuclear energy as a generation source and uh, the need to build and maintain reactors for military applications. We seem to be doing just fine with the Navy. So we're so, having a little trouble with Vogel. So KC the um, so so the military part I. You, I, I, I agree that we don't need to, and I try not to conflate my national security concerns with only the military concerns. I am really talking here about some broader, more global geopolitical concerns, and that is, for the most part, not for the most part, but entirely, the U.S. has been the global steward of the nuclear fuel cycle because we invented this. This is our sure. technology, our science, and our engineering. <clears throat> if 
we lose that industrial, that institutional knowledge. It is a it is a matter of geopolitical reality. Someone else is going to take over. If they do, and the world's moving towards nuclear, they are building nuclear plants. They're building them in the Middle East. They're building them in developing countries. Somebody, some partnering country with the expertise is going to help shore those developments up. If it's not us, there are essentially four options, four or five options. France, South Korea, and Japan, that's, that's okay. Still needs to be us. But Russia and China simply is unacceptable. They are looking at those as uh, not just relationships, but as leverages for influence. They want footprints in those countries. Mm-hmm. That's an 80 to a 100, 100-year relationship where they get to influence those regions where they have... Because of the technical capabilities. That's right. And if the U.S. just simply cannot engage in that anymore, and I'm not teaching engineering students what a nuclear reactor is and how to design one, well, the world's option is they look to Russia and China. <clears throat> I said this in my testimony. We, the U.S., look at those relationships as relationships, friendly relationships. We are there to work with those countries. We don't have ulterior motives of trying to set a grappling hook in one of those developing regions so that they are so dependent upon us that they can't do anything without our permission. That's what Russia and China are setting themselves up to be. So we have to look at this strategically, which is why we can't look at nuclear as just a commodity. It is a strategic, and Russia and China make no bones about this, it is strategic for them because their nuclear industry is an extension of their State Department. Ours, Tim, to the point you've made earlier right now is we're just hoping our capitalistic approach works, and we're going to need a new approach to this than to just try and compete Westinghouse cannot compete with state treasuries. Can't do it. Now, when you talk about the grappling hook that they may use to pull in another country, you, th- you think about nuclear energy, how complicated it is. I think Plant Vogel is more complicated than building a spacecraft. It's certainly way bigger, more moving parts. If you think about a country like China or Russia, quote, trading right this technology so this country whatever country it is that they're trading let's say it's turkey which is definitely not a poor country or an undeveloped country but you take a country like turkey where we've had all kind of issues with them even though they're in nato they are buying some russian equipment uh and if if a country is trading with China and Russia for this very important energy resource, and then they start buying their airplanes from them and their night vision goggles from them and other military hardware, it really it really builds a special bond. I'm going to call it almost an ally type of a bond. Yeah. And yeah. And, and if and, and if we're ceding this to to China and Russia, and I think we are, uh, that's where the nuclear renaissance is happening. It's in China. They're building 25-plus reactors. It's in Russia. They're building reactors. We're sitting over here sputtering, barely able to finish the one here in Georgia, where in Asia, the renaissance is happening. And these countries, I believe China, Russia, they're going to utilize this in creating greater political and military allies. So, Dr. Getty, you talked in your testimony about orienting policy towards or away from nuclear. And, And to Tim's point there... You know, we are not a China or a Russia in terms of being a state-run economy. But how, like, if you were able to wave a magic wand, what would U.S. policy look like to support nuclear in in the strategic way that that you're talking about here? So, so, Casey, and and, and I appreciate you asking that because I had kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think you alluded to the, it. Yeah. The very first step, and and. And let me, I want to give a shout out here real quick, Tim, to my colleagues at the University of Georgia. I, I'm an engineer, and I can talk about the, the, the nuclear physics and things like that. But the essence of this issue that we're talking about here is a geopolitical issue. And the folks I work with, and I'll name them, Justin Conrad, Josh Massey, and Josh Darnell at the Center for International Trade and Security. When this conversation is being had, that's where international affairs experts that know what's going on out there, that's where they engage. And you don't have to be an engineer to understand that. But to your point, KC, our first step needs to be that we need to conduct a thorough 
industrial base review of the U.S. nuclear enterprise. What is the manufacturing and supply chain? What are the choke points? What are the weak points? What is our industry up against right now? We do this for the Department of Defense to ensure that we are able to stand up militarily our industrial manufacturing and supply chain. We need to get a benchmark of where we are in our nuclear industry as well, instead of just waiting for something to happen from time to time, a new scale reactor or a state to take on the risk of building a Vogel, we need something robust and strategic, and that needs to be done at the federal level. So isn't the deregulated <coughs> markets in electricity around America part of what's destroying uh, nuclear power plants like Vermont Yankee and, 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 and the Pilgrim plants? The death knell. Absolutely. But, uh, again, you're going to probably get some, you know, some, some pushback from those that think competitive markets, and this is, again, where nuclear cannot be looked at as just another energy commodity. That's not what it is. And this is the long game, Tim. Natural gas works for the next three to five years. Nuclear is a 50-, 60-year investment. And you're right. The deregulated push has been an absolute anathema to the nuclear industry well there's so much more that we could talk about unfortunately we're going to have to end our show we're going to post a bunch of stuff on twitter so why don't you go to matters radio or tim eccles or, or at casey boyce and dr gaddy get all your stuff at david Dave, gaddy yes just david, david gaddy, david gaddy. So not very hard david thank you dr gaddy thank you for being on the show today I, it's a pleasure to Thank Casey, you, Casey. Thank you. Casey, thanks for co-hosting again. Yep. I'm Tim Eccles. You've been listening to Energy Matters. We hope you have a great rest of the day. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. You've heard about Jim Cars on Energy Matters. Made by Polaris in Anaheim, California. These street-legal, small electric vehicles go where golf carts are not allowed. Equipped with seatbelts, headlights, optional doors, and a tag, Gem Cars and Trucks are perfect for shuttles, corporate, or college campus use. In fact, Georgia Tech has over 100 of them. The new generation Gems have many options when selecting the battery type, onboard chargers, and enclosures to suit the climate. Go to GemCarService.com to find out more. That's G-E-M CarService.com. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl and a foul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.